Well, good morning. My name is Violet Joniker. Hello. Uh, my pronouns are she and her, and I am super excited to be sharing a message with you this morning. Um, you might not have seen me so much around last year. I'm actually in seminary, and so last year I was doing an internship. Woo, seminary got a woo. Thank you. <laughs> Unusual. Um, I was doing an internship last year at Transformation Community United Methodist Church in Harvey in the south suburbs, and so um, I'm just really excited to be back and be a part of this community again and was uh, so blessed and honored that Pastor Hannah asked me to share a little bit with you this morning. So before we do that, will you please join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank you for this time together today. We thank you for the story that we just heard from that ancient text, and we thank you that you are still speaking to us through it. God, we ask that you open our hearts and our minds so that we might hear what you are saying to us in this place. And God, I ask that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be acceptable unto you, O Lord, God, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I want to show you a few pictures. Um, we'll get some pictures up here on the screen. These are people from our church at the last three years of NAMI walks, including yesterday's walk where a bunch of people from Chicago walked and wheeled in support of mental health. NAMI, N-A-M-I, is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, and it's a really cool advocacy group that works to raise awareness about what it's like to live with all kinds of different mental health conditions post-traumatic stress disorder, depression and anxiety, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, eating disorders, psychosis, dissociative disorders, suicide ideation, and other mental health conditions. I got to do an internship at NAMI Chicago a couple years ago, and I was amazed at how many support groups they coordinate, how much policy advocacy work they do in Springfield and Chicago to lobby for more funding of mental health care, and all the campaigns they run in schools to teach kids and teachers about mental health. Their annual walk yesterday was a way for people to come together and be a public witness that talking about mental health matters, that living with a mental illness is totally possible and you can be living well, and that whatever you or someone you care about is going through, you're not alone and it's not your fault. Each year that UBC has walked, we held signs saying things like, you are loved and stomp out stigma, and one of my favorites, make way for neurodiversity. I hope it makes you feel as proud as I do that you're part of a church that shows up for these things and that doesn't shy away from tough topics. And that's where we find ourselves today in this sermon series, A Beautiful Mind. Last week, Pastor Hannah preached on Elijah's depression, reminding us that so many of our heroes in scripture had really difficult times that messed them up for a while. But that terrible plus people is way better than terrible alone. And she taught us that terrible plus God is way better than terrible alone. Our scripture today is also about some of those tough times and offers us a couple different ways of responding. Preaching on topics like this is necessary and faithful and important, but it can also feel really weird and uncomfortable, either because it feels unfamiliar or because it feels so familiar. I just want you to know that I've written this message thinking about each of you and recognizing that we're all coming to this space today carrying really different experiences. I hope you'll stay with me through the whole story, but if you need to step out, that's totally okay, too. Pastor Hannah would be happy to step out with you or meet you in prayer, whatever you need, and we're here after the service as well to talk with you. So throughout seminary, I've been listening and learning from friends, family, professors, and experts 
who've shared stories and best practices on the ways that faith communities can support people living with mental illness, and in particular, with severe depression and thoughts of suicide. And it breaks my heart to know how many times we as a global church have gotten it wrong. If you've been hurt by a church that didn't understand what you were going through or didn't respond in a way that helped you, I'm really sorry. We still don't have it all figured out, but what I hope I can offer today is a starting point, a conversation we can continue and that we can add to of what we can do to prevent suicide. I'm coming to this today with my own stories, thinking of people in my own life who have been impacted by suicide. And today I want to share some of the wisdom from people who've been there, professionals who've provided support, and a perspective of what we as the church can be doing. Some of you are social workers or therapists or teachers with extensive training on this topic, and some of you have firsthand knowledge of coping strategies, and we would all benefit from hearing your stories and your wisdom. I hope we can do that going forward. But today, I just want to offer a few ideas. We're going to talk about what happens in the scripture passage today, and we're going to talk through some best practices of what you can do if you're ever in a situation with someone who is expressing thoughts of suicide based on a training from the international organization Mental Health First Aid. But please know that none of what I say today is intended to force anyone to look backward with questions. Many of us have lost a friend or family member to suicide, and I need you to hear me say today that it was not your fault. It is not your fault. You did the very best you could at the time with the information that you had, and the cycle of coulda, woulda, shouldas can drag you down if you let it. So as difficult as it is, I invite you to try to let go of any of those lingering questions of how things could have gone differently. We can grieve the loss of life together just as God grieves, but it is time to let go of the guilt. We still really only know a little of how brains work and why some people take their own lives, but as we are all working to learn more and be more prepared to be compassionate and supportive neighbors, we have to keep educating one another about what it means to embody love for someone who is experiencing thoughts of suicide. Okay, so this is all really heavy. I just want you to know I feel it too. But let's keep going because talking about this is so important and this is one of the ways we honor people dealing with mental illness. We create space for these stories. So our text today might be a familiar one to you. I remember hearing this story preached on in churches before. It was another of God's amazing miracles that even when it seemed like all hope was lost for Jesus' disciples, Paul and Silas, and they were locked up in jail, God made a way to get them out. Their faithfulness in singing hymns in jail has inspired generations of Christians to remember that whatever we're going through, a prayer and a song can make a difference. Now, I love that message, and there is a lot of truth in that. Prayer and praise are powerful gifts that can sometimes help us refocus and reframe the situations that we're in. But that's just part of the story that we get here. Because there's another kind of suffering in this passage that we're so directly presented with, but that we often try to look past or to simplify. Today I want us to see the jailer's side of things and recognize what he was going through. How a prayer and a song weren't enough for the incredibly deep anguish he felt and how he planned to make the pain stop. The first note I'd like to make about that part of the story is that we aren't given the name of the jailer. He's just named by his profession, and I think we need to start with recognizing that he was more than that. Seeing a whole person and knowing their name is step one. 
Today, let's call the jailer Michael. Actually, that seems a little formal. Let's call him Mike. Maybe that's what his friends called him. Or his kids called him Dad. He had a lot of names, but certainly none of them were jailer. Perhaps Paul and Silas had asked him his name earlier, but for brevity's sake, the author of Acts just gives us the highlights of this story. If you're ever with someone whose depression is so severe it's causing them to think about ending their life, you might already know their name, and it's good to use it. If this is someone you meet on the bus or at work who you don't know, just beginning with, hey, my name is Violet, what's yours? And repeatedly using their name in conversation can have a really powerful impact. God is always reminding us in scripture and in our daily lives that every person in this world is our equal, is also created in God's image, and has a purpose on this planet. I'm studying to be a United Methodist pastor, and one of my favorite teachings of our church is that each and every one of us are designed to be co-creators with God, that we are here with our own unique set of skills and abilities and gifts to build a beautiful world where we all have enough and we're all having a party. We call it the kingdom, and that's what we're talking about when we pray each week, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When I've gone to visit people in jail, I think about how we won't be able to fully bring the kingdom until each of those people are out of jail, stored in community, and actively working to create the world God calls us to. There are so many kinds of jails, and depression can be one. I imagine depression is one we each know something about. We all understand feelings of sadness. But severe depression means that because of something that happened in our lives or because of a chemical imbalance in our brains or some combination of those, we're not able to go about our daily lives, go to work or school, complete regular tasks, or have meaningful relationships. If you or someone you know is struggling with severe depression, you don't have to do it alone, and there are a lot of different types of treatment available. Just like physical illnesses, it is absolutely possible for people to live well with mental illness when they get treatment. Many of us in this congregation have shared during testimony or in small groups that we think therapy can be life-changing. And I'm so grateful to those of you who have helped me be as comfortable talking about going to see a therapist as I am talking about going to see a dentist. Maybe someday we'll get to the point where a mental health checkup is as common as a dental health checkup. I believe that one of the ways human beings share love for one another is by taking care of one another through medical science. That the more we learn about the world God has given us and the tools we have to treat our injuries and illnesses, the more we can be amazed by God and these miraculous bodies and brains that we have. But what Mike in our story today was doing before there were professional therapists and counselors and an antidepressants, I have no idea. Things must have been really hard for him. He was working in a prison for the empire, and it's pretty likely that his boss was not a cool, thoughtful, compassionate guy. He had a family, but because of patriarchal norms that still pervade our culture, you know, men don't cry, and tough guy, and man up, and all that other nonsense, Mike might have been afraid to ask for help. He might have felt isolated and worried that if he shared that he was having a tough time, he'd be made fun of or seen as weak. The irony of that misperception is that it takes incredible strength to say out loud that you're having a tough time. The bravery that a person with severe depression has to muster that they can send that text or make that call to say they can't stop crying or can't get out of bed is an incredible act of courage. 
That's why when Mike felt like he was about to kill himself in this story, it was so brave of him to cry out and to make himself physically near others and give them the space to step into. Verse 27 says, When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. The passage makes it seem as though he must have said what he was planning to do because Paul had to yell loudly to him, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. This brings us to the next point. If you are with someone talking to someone on the phone or see a post online that worries you or you think they're considering suicide, the very important and very difficult question you have to ask is literally, are you thinking of suicide? I know. Uh, the first few workshops that I went to, my eyes got really wide, and I couldn't believe that was actually the most helpful thing to do. But no, the therapist and psychologist reassured the class, you won't put the idea in their head. If someone isn't thinking of suicide, they will tell you no. And if they are, in almost all cases, they are on some level relieved to talk about it. It's important to understand that most people considering ending their own life just want the pain to stop and can see death as the only way to do that. To give someone the space to talk about all of this and to truly listen to them in a calm and loving way can be difficult, but it is necessary and it is a ministry. When you ask a person, are you thinking of suicide, and they say yes, the next question to ask is equally as tough and equally as necessary. Do you have a plan? If not, they will tell you no. If they do, we need to ask what it is and whether they've prepared for it. As this whole conversation is happening, it can be tough to remain calm, but the more of a non-anxious presence you can be for that person, the safer they will feel sharing this very serious information with you. Just imagine the kind of reaction you want from a friend when you're telling them something really hard. Listen more than you speak. Ask clarifying questions and don't rush to judgments. It's always okay to mirror back what they're saying and tell them what you heard. I imagine Paul and Mike in our scripture passage, and Mike must have said something to Paul like, I totally screwed up. This jail is literally falling apart, and all the prisoners are getting out, and I'm going to get fired, and my family's already so poor, and I just can't keep going on like this. I'm going to kill myself with this sword. I have to think Paul said a little more than we have recorded in Acts, but the point that got across was Paul heard that it sounded really hard. He heard that Mike was really overwhelmed. And he said that there is another way through this situation that isn't death, and I'm going to stay with you until we figure it out. Mike set down his sword. Mike's identity was so wrapped up in his job, in his work for the empire, that he could not see himself outside of it. He became so overwhelmed that failure at work and failure in life became synonymous. A lot of us can feel a similar pressure of falsely conflated identity, a confused sense of worth. Our culture makes it so easy to find ways to determine our value based on the metrics of job performance reviews or report cards or comparisons to our friends' lives or to celebrity Instagram feeds. We get that messaging from other people all the time when the first question out of their mouth at the party is, so what do you do? They aren't asking about your hobbies or what sports you like or your favorite books. They mean, we mean, so what job do you have? What do you do to make money? I remember going to a party when I was unemployed and getting that question and feeling sick to my stomach when I fumbled through an answer about looking for a new job. I felt like a disappointment. And then I remember being thrilled beyond belief when I visited Urban Village Church like four years ago 
And the pastor asked me the much more open-ended, so how do you spend your days? It felt like a breath of fresh air. What are the spaces in your life where you know you are loved, where you don't doubt your value and where you feel affirmed? What are those spaces that you create for others? It can be as simple as calling your aunt and asking how her week is going and ending the call by telling her how much you appreciate her. It might be mailing a card to your grandpa with a picture of you two from years ago and telling him how much you've learned from him and how much you still want to learn and asking for advice about something. Or it might be how we support our friends. I saw a tweet the other day that said, behind every successful woman is a group text typing her up. <laughs> Amen. Uh, there are some situations where I don't know what I would have done without that group text of Beyonce lyrics and Leslie Note memes and cute animal encouragements. But we are so in need of those reminders that whatever the world is throwing, us, throwing at us that sucks and hurts and makes us question our value is not what God wants for us. We need reminders of love when people in government tell us our value depends on borders and birthplaces and don't follow the biblical teaching to love and welcome immigrants. We need reminders of love when people who are calling for justice and equality are met with violence and hate speech. We need reminders of love when we are made to feel that our gender or sexual identity or any bodily features determine our worth. And every day we need reminders of love when it feels like the social construct of money in our hyper-capitalist system has anything to do with who we are. It's so pervasive that we don't even realize it most days. That was even how our scripture passage started today. Paul and Silas met a slave who made money for her owners by telling the future. Her story is a whole sermon in and of itself, but let's just take a second and recognize that she was also so much more than her cruel bosses valued her for. She could have been someone's best friend, a sister, a daughter, an entrepreneur. Let us remember her today as so much more than a slave, so much more than who she earned money for. She was a woman with gifts and strengths and callings, and when people who wanted her to be a certain way took advantage of her, she also reached a breaking point. Without the counter-narrative of love and unconditional value, the pressure can be too much. Each year in the United States, over 44,000 people die by suicide and close to a million people attempt suicide. It's the 10th leading cause of death overall and among young people between ages 15 and 34. Suicide is the second leading cause of death. Experts at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention have found that suicide rates have actually been increasing and recently reached a 30-year high. And studies have noted that over the last few years, rates have been increasing the most for middle-aged adults and at especially high rates for Native Americans and white folks. We also know that the suicide rate for those in the queer community is even higher. Some studies have shown that people working in the helping professions have higher than average rates of suicide. More than 20% of people who died by suicide were military veterans. While there is no one who is immune to severe depression or chemical imbalances in the brain, we have to talk about why some people are at higher risk and why suicide rates are increasing in the United States. What factors have contributed to high pressure working conditions and neighborhoods and home lives? How have we separated ourselves by identity and caused harm? And what would it take to change those systems? This is what we mean when we say social justice. In what ways does our culture make it harder for us to talk about mental health and suicide ideation? And what would it take for us to make it more common to seek help? This is what we mean when we talk about mental health justice. 
Severe depression because of circumstances in your life or because of a chemical imbalance or a combination of those are very serious. And like many physical illnesses, can be fatal if left untreated. Finding treatment requires action from the person suffering if they are able or from someone who can help. In our scripture, it's actually Mike who somehow summons the strength to articulate how overwhelmed he was. This is my favorite part of the passage. Right after Paul yelled, don't harm yourself, we're all here, the jailer called for some lights. He called for some lights, he rushed in and fell down shaking by Paul and Silas. He led them outside and said he didn't know what to do. Now you have to remember that in the first century, calling for some lights didn't mean, hey, turn on the big switch. It meant, hey, I need more people in this room with me and bring torches or candles or something so that I can see more clearly. In a matter of minutes, the story has changed from Mike feeling all alone in his depression to Paul saying, we're here with you, and Mike being willing to call in more people, being able to see more clearly and finding a way out. If you're in a situation with someone who is talking about suicide and they're not in immediate danger, a great next step after reassuring them that you're there, that you hear them, and that you care, is to ask if they've had a chance to talk to a therapist or a psychiatrist. Whatever they say, don't judge. Listen. Sometimes it takes a while to find a therapist you connect with, but there are some incredibly gifted people out there who can help people live well with all different types of mental health conditions. Find ways to reassure the person that however bad it feels right now, treatment can make a difference just the way it does with physical illnesses. Avoid any impulse to appeal to guilt or shame. Keep offering hope. Remind them that you are there with them. Talk through options of who to call. We're going to put a slide up on the screen right now, and I'm inviting all of you to take out your phones and to take a picture of it. It might not be for yourself right now, but you never know when you're going to be in a situation where these numbers and websites could be useful. And if you share this info on social media, it lets everyone know you're a safe person to talk to if they need help. So please take your phones out, take a picture, and hang on to all this information. If you're worried that the person is in immediate danger, it's time to start making phone calls whether the person wants you to or not. Invite them to call the suicide prevention hotline and talk to a trained operator. If they don't want to do that and you believe the situation has reached a crisis level, one of the options you have is to call 911 and explain that you're with someone who is having a mental health emergency. In Chicago, a person trained to respond to mental health crises will arrive and can help get that person to a hospital where they can receive immediate care. If you assess that calling 911 isn't the right choice, and there's all kinds of reasons that you might choose that, you can go with the person to an emergency room or call the suicide prevention hotline yourself and ask for help. Even though the person might resist your help and it can be very hard to know if you're doing the right thing, remember again that this person is created in the image of God, that they are your sibling in Christ, and that they have a purpose on this planet and that they are needed. Explain everything you're doing and who you're calling as calmly as you can. Stay with them until you feel they are out of danger or help has arrived. Keep taking deep breaths and don't forget about prayer for yourself. So while calling the police or a hotline for help might be an option for us today, it sure wasn't for Paul. Mike was the police and there were no hotlines. Whatever Paul and Silas and the torchbearers said to Mike, it worked. Maybe they gave him the space to tell a story he'd never told anyone before. They saw him as family and treated him with love and compassion. 
They told him about a God who loved so completely and unconditionally that nothing he'd ever said or done changed how much he was loved. And they said that they'd been there too. They'd been surprised at this radically countercultural love of Jesus who told them there was a better way. The Jesus of Nazareth who lived by a different standard, who always had time for everyone's story and everyone's dinner party, who saw God in each person and taught them that they are beautiful, amazing people who are in it together to build this world into one we all want to live in. That was God's promise then, and it is still God's promise to you now, here today. You have a purpose, and there is a part of this beloved community that only you can create God is calling you to do amazing things, things that bring light and love and life into spaces where people can't feel it right now. Just by being here, by being alive, by being in relationship with others, you are changing lives and teaching the world more about God because you are uniquely created in God's image. Your presence is an incredible gift to this community and to this world, and we need you to stay. We need you to bring the colors into this painting that only you can add, to sing the song that only you can write, to cook the foods that only you can make, and to make this party better just by being at it. There will still be days that are hard, but you are not in it alone. We need you to be totally honest about how it's going for you and how you think we can make this world better. And every time you live out that radically countercultural, unconditional love, you have shared the good news. Amen. Amen. Amen.